One of the truths that Christians believe is that Jesus not only lived and died and rose from the dead, but we believe that he is coming back. Christians believe that, that all of history is, is moving to a moment in which the sky will be rolled back like a scroll and every eye will see the glorious Son of God descending from heaven to finish the work that he began. Christians also believe that that moment is coming soon. That it could happen at literally any time. Now, for some of you, that may seem a little bit silly because it's been 2,000 years since Jesus promised that uh, he was coming back and it hasn't happened yet. We'll talk more about that a little bit later on. But the fact is that we are closer to seeing Jesus right now than when we woke up this morning. We're closer to seeing Jesus right now than, than when we walked in here this morning. And we are closer to seeing Jesus now than when you drew your last breath. Jesus is coming soon. We believe this. And that truth should impact every area of our lives. This morning, we're going to see that as we continue our study in the book of Romans, chapter 13. Romans, chapter 13. I'm going to ask you to turn with me there. We're just going to kind of go verse by verse through the the Bible here, kind of line by line, word by word, and see what God's Word says to us. Romans, chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, no problem. There is a Bible provided for you in the pew rack in front of you. If you'd also like to take that home, if you don't have a Bible, feel free. Uh, that's not stealing, that's a gift. So take you one home and uh, encourage you to, to spend some time reading it. Page 948, 948, Romans chapter 13. I'm going to begin reading for us Romans 13, starting in verse 8 down through verse 14. Romans 8, or chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Verse 11. Do this because you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is God's word. Now, before we get into the text here, I want to point out something you may have noticed if you're reading along in the ESV. 
In verse 11, the ESV renders the, the transition besides this, um, but I translated it, uh, do this because, which is how the NIV captures it. And I think that's actually a really good translation because it, it, it grabs what Paul's saying here, I think, a little bit more clearly. Do this because. Paul's saying we're going to, to love one another, and we do this because we know what time it is. So in, in the original language, it just says, and this. And the interpretation, I think, there, there helps us a little bit. But, but that idea that we know what time it is, the time for Christ to return... That kind of sets the, the theme for this, this whole section that we're going to be looking at this morning. In verses 8 through 10, we're going, to, we're going to seek to love others, and 11 through 14, pursue purity. And we do that because we know that the time is near for Jesus' return. So kind of the, the big idea of this text this morning is that the imminency of Jesus' return should produce urgency in our love and purity. The imminency of Jesus' return should produce urgency in our love for one another and in our pursuit of purity. And that'll kind of be our, our two points. So we're going to lawfully love others in light of Christ's return. Lawfully love others. That's going to be verses 8 through 10. And then soberly pursue purity. Soberly pursue purity. It's going to be verses uh, 11 down through 14. So let's look at this, this first idea here, that we are to lawfully love others. In light of Christ's coming return, lawfully love others. Look again at verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who love, uh, loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, to understand why this is here in the book of Romans, we need to understand what was originally going on in this church that, that received this letter here in, in Rome. So this church in first century Rome was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. So Gentiles are non, non-Jews who had both come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior of all who would turn and trust in Him. The church was unified on that. But, they weren't unified on everything. There seemed to be a a particular disagreement when it came to what they thought meant to rightly worship God. You see, those who came from a Jewish background thought that the church should keep certain portions of the Mosaic law, that people should be circumcised, that you should eat certain foods, so, so no, no crawfish. They should keep the Sabbath. They should observe feasts and festivals. The Jews said, this is, this is how we worship God under the Old Covenant, and this is, we should do this now because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah. We don't need to throw all that stuff away. But the Gentiles didn't have that background at all. They said, listen, we, we've trusted in Christ and we're following after him. We don't, we don't need to adopt those. That's old covenant stuff. And this led to conflict in the church where the people were, were judging each other and looking down on one another because of their convictions rather than loving in humility. So in one sense, the practical part of, or the practical point of Romans is to cast them both upon Christ and realize that they're clothed in his righteousness 
And that to truly worship God means, chapters 14 and 15, that we love one another. And that we put up with one another's differences. And then when there's different convictions, that we work gentle with one another rather than having a spirit that judges each other. We're going to see that more whenever we get into Romans 14 and 15. But this morning, what Paul does is he kind of lays the groundwork for that, the foundation for that, to show that, that loving others is, is what it means to really keep the law. Look again at verse, verse 8. Uh, Owe no one anything except to love each other. So what should Christians do? You love each other. Now, some have wondered if this means a Christian should never take out loans or borrow anything from anyone because then they'd owed somebody something. Um, now, while it's true that Christians should be a people who always pay their debts, that is, that's not the point of what he's saying here. He's just continuing what he said back in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, and now owe no one anything except to love. Love one another. We're always, in one sense, in, in debt to each other to love. You always owe me love, and I always owe you love. Now why? Why, why is that the case, that we owe love to one another? I think this, this helps us when we think about, about doing it. I'm going to give you two reasons why we owe love to one another. The first is this, that we owe love to others because God loved us. We owe love to others because God loved us. Now, this is not to earn our salvation or to earn God's love, but it's a response to the fact that we have been loved. In Romans, we've been, we've been shown the great love that God has shown us in Christ. Remember back in chapter 5, verse 8? God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So not after you got all cleaned up and you were good enough, but no, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were undesiring of him and undeserving of his love, for some reason, in his mercy, he desired us. And he, he loved us in spite of ourselves. He came for us when we were enslaved to our sin, and He set us free by the shedding of His blood and rising from the dead. Have you thought about Jesus' love for you recently? Have you let that kind of be part of your, your meditation? Just turned off the radio, turned off the TV, closed the internet, and, and considered Christ. Considering how He, how if you are in Christ through faith, how he, how he stooped for you, and how He served for you, and how He suffered for you, and how He bled for you, and how He rose for you, and how He has promised to keep you until He comes back for you. Have you considered that love recently? This inseparable love of Christ. We heard it read earlier, Romans 8. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So when we think about, why should I love somebody else? We think of He who first loved us. That from eternity past, God has set upon His people an electing, selecting, predestining, 
calling, justifying, sanctifying, securing love that cannot be broken by anything in heaven or on earth. That's good news. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 says, it is this love of Christ that compels us. It's the love of Christ that it moves us. One who has understood what it means to be loved when unworthy of love is more free to then love others. We love, we show love to others, and we owe love to others because God's love compels us to. And secondly, the second reason is we owe love to others because God commanded us to. God commanded us to. We heard it earlier, but there's a scene in in the Gospels where Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? In Matthew 5, 22, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus says, under the old covenant, there's 613 commandments. In the law, you want to boil it all down to the basics. Or Shai said, the, the cliff notes here. This is what God wants. Love God with all that we are and love our neighbors as yourself. Now, who does he mean that we should love when he says we should love our neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, this certainly includes other Christians. We're called to love one another. But it's also really clear in the New Testament that a Christian's love is not limited only to other Christians. Christians are to show love to all people. People who follow Jesus and people who don't follow Jesus. People we agree with and people who we don't. People who like us and people who hate us. Christians are to be marked by love that looks at others and thinks, how would I want someone to love me. And then we respond in that way because God has commanded us to. How would I want someone to speak to me? What tone? What posture? How would I want someone to disagree with me and show me honor? How would I want somebody to help me when I'm in need? That's what the law is getting after. It calls God's people to love others as fellow humans made in God's image and to treat them that way. Look again at verses 9 through 10, these commandments. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So one of the things you've got to understand is that God's, God's laws, they are not just these cold rules that kind of fell down from heaven. They are gracious guidelines intended to help us to give glory to God, but also to help us to care for each other, to to protect each other, to love each other. So if you do wrong to your neighbor, you are breaking God's law because you aren't loving them. And and he he fleshes it out here by giving you four examples from the Ten Commandments to show us what he he means. Um, The first one there uh, in verse 9 you shall not commit adultery. So, 
If we engage in any kind of sexual activity with someone who isn't our spouse, or if we're single and we do that with uh, a married person, we are not loving them. We're doing them wrong and breaking God's law. And Jesus even takes it further back in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, You have heard this, that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It would be the same at looking at a man with lustful intent. Jesus says loving your neighbor, it it isn't just a physical thing, it's it's a heart thing as well. So I would ask, have you lusted after someone who isn't your spouse? Have you ever had intimate conversations with someone who isn't your spouse? Jesus says that is not loving to them. And if you're married, it's, it's not loving to the person that you're married to. You are doing them wrong, even if the other person desires for it to happen. God says it's not loving to commit adultery. It's, it's loving, though, to say no to conversations that you shouldn't have with that coworker. It's loving to, to avoid flirting with uh, your, your neighbor or fantasizing about some old fling on Facebook. You fulfill the law when you don't commit adultery. The, the next example he gives, you shall not commit murder. It's loving to not kill each other. Yes, it is. This may seem obvious, but it is true. God is the one who gives life and the one who takes it away. That means it is unloving to plot and plan and follow through with murder. But just as with lust, Jesus says it's deeper than just not killing each other. Matthew 5 again, he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says murder's bad. It breaks the law because it's unloving. But so is anger toward others. So is hatred toward others. So is insulting each other. Do you have anger in your heart towards anyone? Are you plotting to hurt someone, even right now? Maybe you've come in here this morning because you've got this overwhelming just urge to take out vengeance on somebody who's done you wrong. Maybe to slander them and tear them down with words. God says we are to love our neighbors. It is loving to protect your neighbor and to forgive your neighbor and to seek to do good and say good to your neighbor. That's loving. The next one, you you shall not steal. It's not loving to steal from people. When, When we take what belongs to another person to benefit ourselves, we are doing wrong to our neighbor. I think this is important to think about in the city that we live in. Do people steal from each other in D.C.? Oh, yeah. Embezzlement, mortgage fraud, bank fraud, insurance fraud, overblown expense reports. 
scams. My dad's trying to sell a boat right now, a little boat. Somebody tried to steal money from my dad. It was a scam. They tried to, they tried to prey on my pops. They did him wrong. Love doesn't do that. Love cares about others, protects other people and their possessions. It seeks to guard them, not hurt them. You shall not covet. It's not loving to set your heart on what someone else has. It's not loving to do that. Why? Because if your heart is tied up in wishing you had what somebody else has, you are not going to be free in your heart to care for that person and rejoice with that person. Some of you, because of your coveting of what somebody else has in their life, has hindered you from really rejoicing with them. Your heart will be tempted to wish ill on them or to resent them rather than to love them. Covetousness cultivates an attitude of resentment toward others. Do you have a hard time rejoicing with others who are rejoicing? Do you have trouble encouraging certain people who get things that you want? What that shows is that we're, we're lawbreakers. All of these commands and all the rest of the commands in the law are given to teach us how to care about others. God's commands, again, are gracious guides for our heart that are intended to help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And and according to the Bible, love isn't just a feeling or an emotion. It has that, yes, but foundationally, love is rooted in truth. Love is, is defined by caring for others according to God's will. That's what love is. We do good to people, not do wrong to them. To love is lawful. Now, some might say, I I thought Christians didn't didn't have to worry about the law. I mean, I was here when you preached on Romans chapter 7. I I heard that. Romans 7 says, we died to the law. We're released from the law. We now serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Why is Paul now in chapter 13, when he's on into this application section, why is he talking about doing what's lawful and fulfilling the law? I thought we were free from that. We're new covenant people. We're people of the Spirit. True, but we're also law keepers. The Bible does not pit the Spirit against keeping the law. We don't keep the law in order to gain positional righteousness, meaning we don't do these things so that God will be pleased with us and will be accepted. That only happens through faith in Christ. But keeping the law is practical righteousness. So we don't keep the law in order to gain positional righteousness, but keeping the law is practical righteousness. God gives us his spirit to empower us to do what the law commands. Right after chapter 7 is chapter 8. Listen to this from Romans 8. It said... God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, couldn't do. Meaning we, we in our sinfulness, we wouldn't and couldn't keep the law. But God did it. How? By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that, listen to this, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according, not to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we should seek to be law fulfillers. The Spirit empowers us to love others, which fulfills the law. 
Listen again to this from Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit, which we always think of in like an individual context, I feel loving, I feel peaceful, I feel patient, I feel kind of gentle. Like the context is how we love each other. So hear this. The fruit of the Spirit is love for one another, joy with one another, peace with one another, patience toward one another, kindness in our dealings with each other, goodness, we love each other lawfully, faithfulness to one another and our commitments, gentleness in the way that we deal with each other, self-control in, the, in everything. Against such things, there is no law. None of God's laws speak against that kind of love because love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, one other thing on this. What this doesn't mean is that as Christians, we go to the law and say, this is my goal now. I will obey it in the power of the Spirit. Instead, we see that the law points us to Jesus who fulfilled the law. So now we... It points us to Christ, and we seek Him as we, by the power of the Spirit, love others, which fulfills the law. He is our goal. So this week, when when you're at home, or you're at work, or you're out doing whatever you do, what we don't do is look at the the person who's hard to love. Okay, so you have someone, don't be angry at them, but whoever that hypothetical person might be, it would be hard to love. What we don't do is think, well, I have the Spirit. Now I'm going to obey the law to love them. That's only partly right. Rather, we look at that hard-to-love person and we think, how Christ has loved me with patience, with tenderness, with gentleness. And we consider that soon he's going to be coming back and we're going to give an account before him of the way that we love the hard-to-love person. And what that does is it stirs in us law fulfillment, where we, by the power of the Spirit, seek to love others as Christ has loved us, and thus Christ is the focus, and the law is thus fulfilled. Okay? Now, even though we got the Spirit, it is not always easy to love other people. Amen? It is, people are tough to love, okay? We are tempted nearly every moment to treat others in ways that aren't lawful, to be bitter towards them, or to lust after them, or to envy them, or to be jealous toward them. So what should we do when we fail to love and don't fulfill the law? We look to Jesus, the one who kept the law on our behalf. So in our law keeping and in our law failing, Christ is always the focus. We're looking to him, the one who showed love perfectly. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. That is what Jesus did for us. He showed us how to love by giving up his rights so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God the Father. And that love toward us should compel us to want to love others in the same way so that when people interact with us, what they ought to see we hope and pray, is the truth of the gospel that we proclaimed, they ought to see it lived out in the love that we show them. So when they hear of this Jesus, who loves them in spite of themselves, they say, you know what? I feel like I've seen that before in some way. I feel like I've seen that in some way through, through the way that you've loved me. Thank you, for your mer- thank you for loving me that way. 
And all that we do with this, this impending reality that, that Christ is coming soon. So that is pressing here and the spirit inside is pressing out. And it, it calls us to think about others and care about others and love others lawfully. It produces an urgency in our love. And it also produces an urgency in our purity. This is the second part of our text this morning. So we lawfully love others, and now we, number two, soberly pursue purity. We soberly pursue purity. When I say soberly, I'm not just talking about not drinking, though you shouldn't get drunk, but I'm talking about a sobriety of mind, as we'll see. Verse, verse 11 again. Do this because you know the time meaning love others, because you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So Paul begins this this second section here, flowing out of loving one another by telling the church to, to check their watches, as it were. He says, you know what time it is. There's, there's a day that's on our calendars that is coming quickly. There's an appointment that is fast approaching. He says, you know the time. The hour has come for you to to wake from sleep. Why? Because salvation is coming soon. Did you hear that? Salvation is nearer than when we first believed. It's coming soon. That that day when, when faith will be sight and hope will be fulfilled. Salvation is coming, and it's coming soon. Now you may say, now hold up, wait, I I thought salvation had already come. And that would be true. Listen to this from Titus chapter 2. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, meaning all who believe, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, it's true, salvation has come when Christ came the first time. He came to bring salvation. He he lived, he died, he rose, and with his resurrection came salvation for all who believe. And though that salvation is finished, it's not yet fully realized. There's, there's more to come. So in one sense, in your Bible, salvation is it's kind of an unfolding blessing in regards to the way that we experience it. It's finished, but it's not fully experienced. So if you're a Christian this morning, if you've turned from your sin, you've trusted in Christ alone, you have been saved. Whenever you first believed, you were justified, given, you were born again, new heart, God's spirit upon you, awakened to believe, you were saved. And 
right now you are being saved. That that love that we read about earlier, that you cannot be separated from, all of the temptations that pull on you, all the things that try to deceive you and distract you, right now, God holds you fast. You're sealed by the Spirit, held. You're being saved even right now. Jesus interceding before the Father on our behalf. And you will be saved. There's the day coming when Jesus will return and he will finish the work and we will fully experience everything that he has for us. So in that sense, that's what he's talking about here, salvation is coming. The the final fulfillment of it all. It's now nearer than when we first believed. Again, if you're a Christian this morning, do do you remember when you first believed? For me, it was 15 years ago now. 15 years ago, in between my junior and senior year in college, coming out of a crazy season with drinking and drugs and relationships and everything that came with that, very dark season, and God in his mercy sent several friends with the gospel, and God opened my heart to believe 15 years ago. And I am now nearer than when I first believed. Well, You remember when you walked in here this morning? You are now nearer than when you first sat down for this service to begin. You are now nearer to seeing Christ than when I started this sermon so long ago. All right? Jesus is coming soon. And that should affect us. It should, it should do something. It should produce an urgency and an expectancy in our hearts. It should wake us up. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We have not seen him, but our hearts look toward the heavens in faith and say, come, Lord Jesus. Help us to love you more. Give us that heart. That's what the heart of a Christian does. And when it doesn't, we we know that there's something off and we ask him to give us that. He is coming. I would ask you, does, does that move you? That today could be the day. Today could be the day that you see your Lord. 2 Timothy 4.8 There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only me, but all who have loved His appearing. Do you love His appearing? Oh, that we might love His appearing. More than anything else, might our hearts love His appearing more than fame, more than than fortune, more than applause, more than affirmation, more than success, more than sexual thrills, more than the ease of comfort. Might Might our hearts love His appearing more than anything else? Might we be awakened from our sleep. 
Let us not be like the disciples who were in the garden of Gethsemane and they fell asleep at that hour of testing. Let us not be like those foolish virgins who slept rather than preparing their lamps. Are you asleep this morning? I don't mean through the sermon. Are you asleep towards the Savior? Do you lack urgency in prayer? Do you lack desire to hear His promises? Do you you find yourself dull towards others' needs? Let us wake up, for salvation is now nearer than when we first believed. There is a hope that's on the horizon that should affect us now. It should lead us to, to walk in the light of purity. Look again at verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. It's here. There's been a changing of the guard because of Christ's coming. He died and he rose and now he reigns as the Lord of light. And we're to walk in that light, in that day, as it were. Because there's, there's a secrecy that comes with the night. That's the way of sin. It calls you to believe that what's in the dark is really hidden. That's why people make sure nobody's looking. That's why we delete emails and search histories and text messages. That's why people don't have affairs on park benches. They hide it. Because we know that there's, well, we think that there's safety and secrecy in the dark to love our sin. Some of you this morning are hiding in the darkness. There's an illusion of secrecy there. But, but because of what Christ has done, the night is far gone. The picture is the idea that, that though the night is here and sin is thriving, but that the sun of righteousness is rising up and soon and very soon a day is coming when light will be exposing everything for what it is. And there will be nowhere to hide. He says, wake up, because there's a sobriety that comes with the light. So there's secrecy in the night, but there's sobriety in the light. Now, some of us have known this light through, through painful ways, the, the light of consequences, as it were. There's sobriety in the light of a jail cell, where you realize what you did was dumb or evil, maybe both, probably both. There's sobriety when you clean out your desk at work because of your misconduct. There's a sobriety that comes in the morning after a night of sinful indulgence. But there's, there's a better way to gain sobriety. It's found in the sobriety of hope. Not of consequences, though those come. But there's a sobriety of hope that awakens us. That says, wait, listen. Listen, put your ear of of faith toward the heavens. Is that the angels singing? Listen for the trump sound. Hear that tearing of the sky like a scroll. The Lord is coming. Turn your eyes toward the heaven with hope. Listen to this from 1 John 2, 
2 and 3, it says, Little children, abide in Jesus, so that when he appears, not if, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. It's like he's saying, wake up. Right now, some of us are living in such a way that we've got sin hidden in our lives. And when the light of Christ comes in and blows the doors off this place and everything's exposed, we will be ashamed of things that we're hiding, of things that we've lied about, of things that we thought were concealed in the darkness. He says, let there be no such thing. Confess those things. Repent of those things. Put them away. Put off the works of darkness. Walk in the light. And then he goes on to say, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be, meaning glorified, perfected, has not yet appeared. But we know that when he, meaning Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. In the sense it will be glorified and perfected and have no sin. Because we shall see him as he is. And listen to this. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There's a purifying effect that happens when we hope in Christ's return. When we, when we hope in him, it gives a sobriety that makes sin look so foolish. When we think about that this could be the day that he's coming back, what it does is it, it sheds light on stuff and it makes sin just look utterly silly. It helps us to flee. How many times have you sinned and then later on looked back at what you've done and say, oh, I wish I would have seen that in the moment. I wish I'd have known. I wish I would have thought, I wish I would have felt like this before I did that. To my shame as a Christian, as a pastor, got more times of those than I wish I wish there were I think we're all like that if we're honest why couldn't I feel then what I feel now and this whole section is intended to help us soberly see what lays before us it helps us to consider the end of our sin and know that it has nothing good for you sin's promises are they, they promise to be sweet, but its aftertaste is always bitter. And obedience to God may at first be bitter, but its aftertaste is always sweet. And by meditating on Jesus' return, we gain sobriety to see sin for what it is. So then, verse 12, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Paul says, wake up, cast off the works of darkness. The word cast off, it means to put aside, to be a done away with. It's repentance language. Stop doing this. Stop dishonoring God and being unloving toward others. But, I want to be also really clear that, that repentance isn't just turning away from something, it's also turning toward something else. Verse 12, put on the armor of light. Put off, put on. That's repentance. Stop and now pursue. Put on the armor of light. We are at war right now. In this moment, even though it may even feel peaceful here, 
Sin is trying to deceive us and kill us and, and kill our fellow believers that we sit around right now next to. So we must feel the urgency of the time and put on the armor of light. This is echoed in 1 Thessalonians 5. It says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for the helmet, the hope of salvation, the hope. What does this, what does this mean, okay? Well, I think 13 and 14 further explains what it means to put off and put on. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies, parties of perversion, and drunkenness, whether it be the, the casual partying that goes too far or the drinking away of your sorrows. Not in sexual immorality, uh, whether it be anywhere from, from, from pornography to sexual relationships outside of marriage. And sensuality, which is the behavior that usually leads up to sexual immorality. That posture of seduction. Not in quarreling, which is selfish rivalry or competition or having a condemning and critical spirit. And not in jealousy. Jealousy, a feeling of of insecurity and anxiety over why somebody else is getting what you want. Now, I don't know about you, but those last two sins seem a little bit out of place. But I, I think that it helps us do a couple things. First, it reminds us that we are all temptable. So even if you can look at those first few and be like, that's just not me, and then be tempted to feel pride, I suspect those other two haunt you. None can escape lawlessness because we're sinners, and that's why we need a Savior. But also, we'll see in chapter 14 and 15, those were the sins that were flourishing in the Roman church. And because of that, people weren't walking in love, and they weren't living as if the day were at hand. He says, don't walk in these things which are against the law and against love. But instead, verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And this right here. So if you're like, I need a verse to memorize. Verse 14, put this one in your heart. Put it in your mind. If you're like, I've never memorized a verse. Welcome to a wonderful verse to do so. Tuck this in your heart that you might have it there with you as this battle rages. Because we are at war right now. Jesus is coming soon to take us to be with him, but our sin and our flesh, that part of us that resists God, and, our, and the tempter says, don't be so concerned. Don't be so worried about this Jesus coming stuff. You've got time. Just one more time. Just one more round. You've got another day. It's been a long time. I suspect it'll be a long time more. There's fun to be had here. Do it when you get out of college. Do it when the kids are gone. Do it when you're retired. And what what's the temptation is to not feel your need for God. And real joy is found in satisfying your desires. That's where the temptation is. And every day, you've got to know, and I'm sure you're aware, that your, your flesh is going to cry out to be satisfied. It says right there in uh, verse 14, don't gratify its desires. It's always craving to be satisfied. Go, go, go fetch that compliment so that you can feel affirmed. Go searching for it. Go, go, go ahead and buy that new toy so that you can be amused for a little while. You deserve it. Go, go feed on that food that you don't need 
so that you can be pacified. Go look at a, a forbidden man or woman so that you can get a little excitement. Go use people so you can advance in your ambitions. People use you. Those are the kinds of things that our flesh is always wanting to be scratched with. The temptation always centers on the call to delight yourself in this world at the expense of hoping in the one to come. Now, I want to be really clear. You can glorify God by enjoying good gifts in this life. I'm going to be really clear in that. So, you know, go eat you some tacos, go fishing, get you two scoops of ice cream, you know, go watch you a game with some friends, laugh with some friends, have a blast, okay? That's all fine stuff. If it's done with the posture that realizes that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And it's all about enjoying Him who gives good gifts. But sin says, forget all of that. And that's where we must guard our heart, to be mindful to not love this world or the things in this world, because then we will dismiss God, and our hearts will become apathetic towards His coming and His pleasure. Because what what happens is, and it happens slowly. So for some of us this morning, it's, it's so subtle, this worldliness that creeps in, we don't even recognize it on us, that we really love this world. And it's like, it's like a room that is slowly filled with poison in the air, carbon monoxide. You fall asleep, and you can just go on in your worldliness not even thinking. Some of us haven't even thought about Jesus returning for weeks or months or years. Some of us, it doesn't even cross our mind that today could be the day that Jesus is coming. If that's you, it may be, it may be because you're not putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you're gratifying the flesh so much that you kind of like it here in a way that's inappropriate to like it here. So what must we do? We must put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Well, how? How do we do that? These last few minutes, I want us to think about how we do this practically. The first thing you've got to know is that for Christ to be, Christ must first be in us before he can be on us. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he first must be in us. We must first be born again by turning to him in faith and trusting in his finished work. It is through that that he clothes us with his righteousness and fills us with his spirit. So I want you to know that if you're not a Christian this morning, you can change your life, you can quit smoking, you can lose some weight, you can do some good, you can fix your life and adjust things in such a way uh, that it may be more comfortable and you may even look like you're doing well, but I want you to know that from the heart, true transformation that glorifies God and is evidence for us on that final day of judgment only comes from abiding in Christ and having been born again and made right with him. We must then put him on every day like we do a garment. So if we're clothed in his righteousness, then each day as we go out, we must put him on. He is the armor of 
light. Now, again, what, is, what does that mean? Do I have like a Jesus cape or some Holy Ghost underwear? Like, how does this work? Like, what is, I don't understand. Like, what do you, how do you put on Jesus? So this is not, this is not a, this is not an act of fashion. It's, it's an act of faith. There is, there's a faith that says, I need to clothe myself in Christ. It's a mindset. It's the way that you think about things that takes the truths that the Bible tells us about Jesus, and we think that way. Okay? So, and, and, it, and it is that mindset that we must carry with us before temptation happens, so we might see soberly when it comes, in the midst of temptation that we must run back to, and after temptation, either to, to, to cry out for forgiveness or to celebrate in, in obedience. So, what if you're tempted towards jealousy or envy of another person? What should you do? You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Picture in your mind the scene of the leper, the one that Jesus came and healed. How he was out there alone and had been passed by, how parents had shielded children's eyes from looking upon him, how he had been outcast because of his uncleanness. And now realize that you are that leper because of your sinfulness, that you are unclean. And what did Jesus do there in Matthew 8? What did he do for the leper? What did he do for you? He reached down and he touched you. And he healed you. He cleansed you. He gave you everything that you did not deserve. So when we are jealous and envious of somebody, we remember the grace that has been given to us and that Christ actually supplies all that we need because of his love for us. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What if you're feeling tempted to despair over a situation that you can't see hope for? You're like, this is the week that if things don't change, I'm done. What do I do? You stand alongside Mary and Martha at the grave of their brother Lazarus. And you hear the wailing. And you see the tears. And then you hear Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth. And you watch as despair is transformed into a scene of celebration. And you know in your heart that Christ is greater than whatever you face. And whether it's in this life or the life to come, He's gonna care for you. He'll do that. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What if you're feeling tempted to steal something from someone? whether it be something small or, or millions of dollars from a company or taxes that are due, what can you do? You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you picture yourself among the disciples at the Last Supper, having your feet washed by the hands that would soon be nailed to the tree for you. You consider how he, he cleansed the feet of his disciples before those same feet ran out into the night to forsake him. 
And you let that mercy that falls on you every day be your treasure. Don't give in to the call to take what's not yours. Christ has given you a treasure that we should never trade anything for. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. God gave you everything, and he gave you Jesus. What if you're feeling particularly tempted towards pleasing people in a way that you know will displease God? You're in a situation at work or in a friendship, and you know there's a call to compromise, to do what everybody else is going to want you to do. What can you do? You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You run to Calvary in your mind, and you think of what happened there. You, you picture yourself among the crowd. You picture yourself nailing him to that tree. You hear your voice among the scoffers. And then you hear him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And in that moment, with those words of grace echoing in your ear, the sin of pleasing people seems a bit silly and exposed by the light of the acceptance and the affirmation that we receive in Christ himself? Or what if you're feeling tempted towards anxiety and fear? What should you do? You put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you go with Mary on that Sunday morning, and you look with her to see that the stone was rolled away. And you stoop down with with Peter and you peer into that empty grave. And what do you see there? You see an empty tomb because Christ is there no longer because he rose victorious over the grave. And that one thing, the great thing that all of us ought to be anxious and fearful about, death and the grave, Christ is victorious over that. And if Christ is victorious over that, calm our souls to know that whatever you fear and whatever you're anxious about that if he can calm the wind and the waves, he can calm your soul today you put on the Lord Jesus Christ that's how you live as a Christian it's a, it's a mindset of that the truths that we learn about Jesus are really true And then we all walk in them by seeing lies for what they are and saying, but Christ says this is true. Help me to apply it and put him on. We know that his robe is our righteousness, that my standing before God is acceptable because I'm clothed with the righteousness of his son. And as the father said at the baptism of Christ, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He now says that of you, if you are in Christ. And whatever sin can say to you to try to tempt you away, it's nothing compared to that affirmation of the Father of glory. What better thing could sin offer you than the love and the acceptance of the Father? Nothing. So, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Cover your weakness with his strength. Cover your sin with his sacrifice, your foolishness with his wisdom, your failures with his victories, your wanderings with his faithfulness. And it's by thinking this way that we arm ourselves with the light of the presence of Christ. We put him on 
the light and the beauty of Christ is the armor of light. And it is our strength in, well, in warfare. So I would ask you right now, what are you making provision for, for your flesh? What is it right now? Plead with Jesus to cover you with his power so that you can make war against spiritual sleepiness. Now this idea may seem silly to some of you. This idea of Jesus coming back and living in light of that because it's been 2,000 years. It's a long time for a promise to be resting upon the hearts of people. I want you to hear this from 2 Peter chapter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that you should perish but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done will be exposed. So if you're not a Christian here this morning, we are glad that you are here. But if you hear the Lord's voice today, do not harden your heart. Because the day is coming. Soon time shall be no more. The calls for repentance will no longer be heard. The sermons filled with hopeful promises will no longer be proclaimed. The days that offered repentance will cease to exist. And all that will remain will be the deafening silence of impending judgment on those who do not believe. Christianity is not a joke. Jesus is not a joke. He's the real deal. He's a glorious Savior. And if you don't know him, I would say, come unto Christ. Be born again. And if you do know him, let us be a people who put him on each day by faith with the hope of his soon return that would move us to love one another lawfully and to soberly pursue purity for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that the imminency of Jesus' return would produce urgency in our love and in our purity. Would you mark us as the people who actually believe the things that you say and that by faith apply them? God, teach us this odd work of putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, this act of faith that in many ways, seems foreign to us. For, Lord, we are so used to living by sight. But, God, turn our hearts and our hopes toward that day when Jesus will return. Oh, Father, we pray that he might even come before we finish this last song. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Come soon. In his name we pray. Amen.